Uh, Today, we're going to look at Psalm 139. So if you have your Bibles, if you have your iPads, your phones, whatever you may be using, whatever device, uh, click on the right app, not the wrong app, scroll on down, Psalm 139. We've got a lot to cover. We're going to try to hit all 24 verses today. We'll see if we get there. If we don't, we'll skip the last part. Uh, We'll come back and hit it some other time. Psalm 139. Uh, To bring you along in the We Believe series, for those who may be guests today, we have been going through uh, We Believe. We have talked about several different things. We have finished our portion on what we believe about Scripture. Uh, The Bible is infallible. It's an error. It's God's Word. It's His revelation to us. We move now to where we talk about the doctrine of God. When we talk about what we believe about God, uh, we know about God because He's revealed Himself to us. When we talk about God, we talk about Him in communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes. And those are big words that really just mean this. There are characteristics of God that communicate to us because we participate in some small way imperfectly in those characteristics, such as love. We love others. Uh, We can participate in a small way in the love that God has, and that's a communicable attribute of God. God, though, has incommunicable attributes as well that we can't even begin to fathom or imagine what it would be like, such as being all-knowing, being ever-present. And so we talk about these in the omnis, basically, of His omniscience, His all-knowingness, His uh, omnicompetence, uh, His omnipresence, all of the different omnis that you would think about. We can't participate in those. We exist in one time in one spot, in one place. We are not everywhere. So today we're going to look at some of the incommunicable attributes of God, and I know of nowhere else to find them in any better setting than in Psalm 139, which talks about some of these attributes, and we'll get into that. But let me start us off by this way. I remember walking in the door to my house one day, and when I walked in, I went through our kitchen that we had at the time and walked into the living room, which was in the front, my dad sitting on one side, my mom on the other, and I heard these words, is there something you need to tell us? Anybody ever heard these words before? What immediately goes through your mind when you hear these words? Well, I take from the rumbling, you're as depraved as I am, and As I hear these words, what goes through my mind is, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. What goes through my mind next is a series of really rapid thoughts because the response is supposed to come out of my mouth quickly. The longer the response waits, the more trouble I'm probably in. I begin to think, what do they know and what can I offer up that's on the low end of what they know in case they don't really know anything? Because if they know something up here, I can work my way up to that. But if they know something down here on the scale of trouble and I offer up the one that means big, big time trouble, then I've given them more than they have. So I'm trying to figure out what do they know? What do I know? What can I offer on the lowest scale to get in the least amount of trouble? Anybody out there with me on this? All right. Yeah, it happens in student discipline too. We know what you do. I'm just saying. But that's what goes through my mind. Why does that go through my mind? It's because I know that my parents, even though they knew a lot, didn't know everything. At least I thought they didn't know everything. Sometimes what I've learned now being on the other side of this as a parent is that when I start asking my son or my daughter is there something you need to tell me? I already know the whole gamut. What I'm really trying to gauge is the condition of their heart as to whether they're trying to be deceptive in what they're up to or whether it was just giving into a temptation and there's a sense there where we all still fall to temptation. We are never going to be perfect. And so 
As the parent in this situation now, I sit back thinking, the best thing you can do is just be honest. You've heard it all said before, honesty is the best policy. Growing up, I didn't always believe that. You know, honestly, sometimes as an adult, I'm so sinful just to be completely transparent with you. I still don't believe that sometimes. But this text tells us that honesty is the best policy all the time when you're dealing with God. We believe in a God who knows. In Psalm 139, we understand that the word know occurs in this passage six times. This is about the God who knows. You'll find it in verse one, where it talks about God knowing us. You'll find it in verse two, when he knows when we sit down and when we rise up in verse four, he knows words uh, and our thoughts all together. In verse six, it talks about this knowledge being too great for us. In 23, you have a prayer for the God to search David and to know him. In verse 14, it talks about our soul knowing how wonderful God is. This Psalm, Psalm 139, is the Psalm about the God who knows. And I would submit to you that honesty is always the best policy when dealing with God. This psalm is bracketed. It begins in Psalm 139, verses 1 and 2, with a theological statement, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. It ends in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, with a prayer, O God, search me and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts. Good theology results in good prayers. It breaks down into four separate sections. These four sections are in groups of six verses. The first grouping of six verses is that God knows us completely, or it talks about God's omniscience. The second grouping of six verses, seven through 12, is that God surrounds us continually, or it talks about God's omnipresence. He's everywhere. The third grouping of six verses is that God formed us wonderfully, or that this is God's omnipotence. He's all-powerful, and this is an example that flows out of the fact that God knows all, and God is everywhere, and so he exhibits his omnipotence in that God even forms life in the womb. And the, sec- the last set of six verses is a prayer for judgment or a petition for judgment as David responds with a reaction of honest emotion, crying out about those who reject such an awesome God. So we're going to start by reading the first six verses. And out of honor for the reading of the word of the Lord, would you stand with us as we read Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6? If you're able, please stand. It says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know me when I sit down. You know me when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Dear God, as I come before you today, even in an attempt to to preach this passage, to walk through this text, Father, I confess before you that I am just a sinful man. God, is texts like these that bring out our knowledge of our own fallenness and our own sinfulness where we can do nothing but plead to your mercy, Lord. God, we thank you that you are so wonderful and that you are so gracious. And Lord, that even though you know us completely, you still love us unconditionally. God, may we do our best this morning in this text to glorify you and for Jesus to be exalted. It's in his name we pray, amen, and you may be seated. The first section of six verses, as you're taking notes there, is to say that God knows us completely, verses one through six. It starts out and it says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. 
You think about the language here. He uses language that talks about to examine with great care, to take great pains into searching out. You think about investigators or paralegals as a team of investigators might be put on a case to search out and know every detail. Paralegals might be assigned to comb through a law to understand every detail and every word of the law. And that's kind of the example that's here. It's digging deep, it's mining, it's exploring thoroughly. And here we see that, oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. Does it terrify you that God knows everything about you and knows you even better than you know yourself? Or does it provide great comfort to you that God knows you completely and thoroughly and that God still loves you in this way that he sent his son to die on a cross for your sin? Now, we have to be careful here when we look at this language in the Psalms to see that it says the Lord has searched and known because we understand that God's not finding out new information. God's not sitting in Dr. Murdoch's class as much as we love them to learn about history. He already knows it. God's not hiring a team of investigators to dig deep into my life because God already knows everything that happens in my life, even in the closed door closets of life. He is a God who knows all, and so we can't take this too far. We understand that the word know here comes from the word yada, 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 yada. If you've watched Friends in the past and you've seen that on TV, is the word Hebrew there for the word to know. It's also the word used in the Old Testament for the most intimate form of knowing someone. It beckons the question, how much does God know about us? The answer is, he knows everything. We must recognize here that it says the Lord has searched us and known us even when we sit down, even when we get up, no matter what we're doing, the Lord knows. And it says he has discerned my thoughts far from me. And that terrifies me to some degree as I'm honest with you and that I know that all of my thoughts are not godly thoughts. They're not good thoughts. They're not thoughts I would want displayed on a screen somewhere. And to know that the Lord knows my thoughts beckons the question in my own heart, Lord, how responsible am I for the things which I think? Aren't there things that come into my mind that I can't control? And immediate thought as it happens. And yet, as I think about this and examine it in my own life, I understand that I am responsible for what I put into my mind. And to a large degree, what I put into my mind, that shapes or focuses the thoughts that come out of my mind. Let me prove that to you. Anybody in here like video games? We had a few that like video games. If you play a video game all weekend long, which none of you do because you have way too many studies to taking place to do that. If you play a video game all weekend long and you go to bed that night and you sleep, do you dream about a video game? Anybody ever been on a boat for an entire weekend? To find that when you got off the boat and you laid down in the bed, the waves were still moving you in some sense or in some fashion. Have you ever participated in an activity in such degree that you couldn't get it out of your mind? Perhaps you had gone hunting or perhaps you'd gone fishing or perhaps you had been watching a marathon TV show and every episode back to back of The Office or of Criminal Minds or of 24 or of whatever your show might be only to realize that that affected the way you dreamed at night, that all of a sudden you became Jack Bauer or you had evil villains knocking at your door to kill you in your house and you you know these things are not true, but yet in your mind, you begin to think those type thoughts. Anybody out there ever had that happen? There's a lesson for us here. And what we put in is often what we're going to think about and what comes out. 
So if we listen to music that is not good music, we understand what's going to happen. If we watch television shows or movies that are not good, and I'm not trying to get legalistic on you here, I'm just saying recognize what you put in to your mind. It's what's going to be in your mind. It's going to affect your thoughts. The Lord knows your thoughts far off from you. Philippians 4.8 says, so whatever things are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, think on these things. If you're thinking about scripture, if you're thinking about God, if you're putting good, wholesome stuff into your mind, then good thoughts will come out. Here's what I want to say to you on this as we think about what we put in. If, if what we think reveals who we really are, if what we think reveals what we're putting in, then let's put in gospel stuff so that we'll think gospel thoughts. Think about what you put into your mind. God knows our thoughts far from us. He says he searches out our paths and my lying down in verse three, and you're acquainted with all of my ways. It says in verse four, even before a word is on my tongue, he knows it. Does that scare you? You know what that means? That means even in those times when we say, bless his heart, God knows the intent of the comments that come out of our mouth. Even in those times when we say, I need to share a prayer request about such and such, God knows the intent of the thoughts. Even those tweets that you started to do and then you hit delete because you realized you shouldn't post that, or those Facebook posts that you typed out, or those emails that you typed out because you were venting over something that happened and you never hit send, or that you never posted to Facebook, God knows that stuff too. Now, I would expect God would know what we say in public. I would expect for somebody to even hear about what is said in private. But to think about the fact that this tells us, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. That's scary. Our thoughts, the words we never speak. Let me put a comma right here and say this to you. And let me, I'm saying this because I care about you. I'm not saying this because I'm trying to have legalism in any sense of the word. Be careful what you post on the internet. Be careful what you post on Facebook. Be careful what you post in any situation or context. Let me tell you why I'm concerned particularly that you do this. Because I know what I do every time an application crosses my desk. I pull up my browser and I type in their name and I search to see what pops up on the internet. I go to their Facebook page to see what they've made public. I go to Twitter to see if they have a Twitter account to see what they're tweeting. I check out all of their social media footprint before I ever read all four pages of their application. I'm looking at what they're putting out on social media in the world, and there are some of you that are putting out things in social media. They're not sinful. They're not wrong, but they're going to keep you from getting hired by somebody that wants you to be more wise in what you put out later on. You say, how do you know that? Because I've seen what you put out, and I wouldn't hire you based on what you've put out on social media. And so I'm just saying to you out of a concern for you and you getting a job and you doing well and you living a vocation and doing in a vocation to glorify God and to live out the gospel, I'm saying to you, be careful. I'm saying this as a, as a father would talk to children to be careful. And so understand my heart in this. It's not legalism. It's not that you've done something mean against me personally. I just see things and I think, oh, if, a, if somebody that's gonna hire you sees that, that's trouble. So be careful what you're posting. You can't always go back and delete things. You understand that. And you understand that even if you do, God still knows. It says you hem me in. You understand the hem is like the hem of a garment. It's all around. It's behind. It's, in, it's before. You lay your hand upon me. And then this, this psalm where he's talking about all of these truths turns to a psalm of praise as David responds in verse 6. And he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot 
contain it. This God who knows us completely still loves us unconditionally. We can take solace in that fact. There's an application that flows out of these particular verses. I've got some of them listed for you on the screen. God already knows your thoughts, your words, your actions, so honesty is the best policy in dealing with God. There's no need to try to pretend that we're something we're not. We are just sinful men and women. We have evil, wicked thoughts. We have evil, wicked hearts. We plead to the mercy of the cross. We plead to the grace of God. Here we must be honest when we're dealing with God about who we are and who he is. You're responsible for what you put into your mind. Be cautious what you put in. Use your words to build up, not tear down. Are you somebody that encourages others all the time? Or are you somebody that's constantly talking about them behind their back and tearing them down? Use those power of words to build up, not to tear down. If God knows our smallest actions, if God knows when we sit down and when we stand up, if God who has all of these things under his control is concerned about our smallest action, then we should be to be intentional. Sometimes we talk about free time or wasting time. I don't know that God would ever be pleased with us referencing to the time he's given us as free time or wasting time. We should be intentional with our time. We should use it wisely. We should use it for his glory. You cannot cheat God. I want to put another comma here. There's a culture in higher education. I'm not saying there's a culture at Cedarville, although there may be. I'm not in the classroom often enough to know. But there's a culture in higher education that says, if it's not on the syllabus, you can do it. You understand that's not right. The syllabus never tells you don't take a club and beat your professor over the head with it if you don't like the grade you got on a test. But if you do that, you will find out very quickly that's not right. Right? Your syllabus is not meant to be an all-encompassing document. Your syllabus is meant to be a framework to tell you what assignments are due and when so that you can move forward in a way of understanding the expectations. Your syllabus is not supposed to list everything. So if you're the person sitting in the room today and you say, if it's not on the syllabus, I can do it. Let's just clarify that right now. Any academic dishonesty will not be tolerated at Cedarville University, period. That's it. And if you come to us and you say, but it wasn't on the syllabus, do you know what the response is going to be? That's an understood statement. We are not going to allow academic dishonesty at a Christian university because we have a higher standard. Secular institutions don't allow that excuse either. I would say to you also, some of you think, well, I could get away with it. It's not wrong if I don't get caught. It is still wrong. And I would tell you this to you as well. I went to a meeting. I go out and preach frequently, and I was preaching at a rural event and a gentleman came up to me, and he was probably 70 years old. And he, he grabbed a hold of my arm in a way that people don't normally grab a hold of your arms when you're at events, right? I mean, I'm sitting at a chair eating, and he grabs a hold with both hands on my arm, and he latches onto it, and he says, I need to talk to you. Now, at first, I didn't know what was going on. I thought, I'm in trouble. I thought, this dude is about to take me to the woodshed out here or something. I don't know. He's 70. I'm not. I thought, okay, we'll go see what, he, what he's talking about. But, I mean, it was serious. He pulled me over and we went to a corner of the room. We sat down and nobody was anywhere near us. And I sat down in the chair and I said, what can can I do for you? What can I help you with? What's going on? And tears began to stream from his eyes. And I thought, oh, he's not mad at me. Something else, something deeper is going on here. What is happening? And I watched as he tried to gain his composure. Let me refresh your memory here. He's about 70. As tears streamed from his eyes and fell off his cheek, he said, I need to confess something to you. I said, okay. He said, when I was a student at Cedarville University, I cheated in a class. 
I've been a pastor since I graduated from Cedarville, and it eats at me every year that I cheated in a class while I was at Cedarville University. I cheated on a test. Nobody ever caught me, but God knows, and it has been eating away at me ever since, and I've known that I needed to tell somebody, and I wanted to come tell you when I found out you were going to be at this event. He said, if you want to take away my degree, I completely understand. Do you know how sweet it was for me to be able to pray with this brother who had confessed this sin that happened 50 years ago? And to be able to see the joy on his face as he had unloaded this burden off of his shoulders by confessing what he had done? It's not worth it. Where you are in your relationship with God is more important than what grade you get on a test or a quiz or an online class or an exam. It's not worth it. God knows all. I'll end the comma there because time will not allow me to spend more time on that. But we move to verse 7 to the second set of six verses. It talks about God surrounds us continuously here. Verse 7 says to us, Where shall I go to get away from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? These are two rhetorical questions. It's a rhetorical device. The answer to both is nowhere. Where shall I go to get away from your spirit? Lord, nowhere. Your spirit is everywhere. Where shall I go to flee from your presence? Nowhere. There is nowhere I can go. And so he elaborates in the use of poetry here. If I ascend high to the heavens, you are there. If I ascend low into the earth, into Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and fly to the east and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea on the west, no matter where I go, Lord, you are there. Even there, your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. Everywhere we go, God is there. Now, this has two different aspects to it. This comforts those who are seeking to please God, and this terrifies those who are seeking to deceive God. Where are you this morning? Is your heart's desire, is your heart's orientation to please God and you struggle with sinfulness? Or is your heart's orientation to deceive God and in in a deception, you understand that this terrifies you, that you can't get away from him. I pray that your heart's orientation is to please God and you, like me, just struggle with a sinful flesh and temptations of the world that cause us to stumble. But when we get up, we we wanna pursue God and we want the righteousness that God can give us. If we were to put this in modern day terms, we might say something like this. If I were to mount up on the Starship Enterprise and launch out into the final frontier, what would I find? But God is there. If I were to jump on the Millennial Falcon and go to a galaxy far, far away, what would I find? God is there. If I were to go on a journey to the center of the earth, what would I find? But God is there. If I were to go 10,000 leagues under the sea, what would I find? But that God is already there. If I were to go all the way to the east to watch the sun peak up over the horizon and then fly with the speed of light all the way to the west as the sun were to set again, what would I find? But all along the journey, God is there. So you say to yourself, oh, I'm going to wait till it's dark then because that's what we do, right? We wait till it's dark to do the bad deeds because in the darkness, nobody can see. And that's where the text goes. Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be as night, even the darkness is not dark to you. Even the night is as bright as day for darkness is as light with you, God. What the text is saying here is the text is saying God has divine night vision goggles. 
He needs no sun. He is the sun. He needs no light. He can see all. The darkness does not cover you. You wait until the darkness to do your deeds, and you think nobody's going to be the wiser. Nobody's going to find out, but God already knows. Think about what we learned through the Old Testament. Adam and Eve tried to play a game with hide-and-seek with God, only to find out that God is the master of hide-and-seek. Jonah tried to flee God, only to find out that God has bounty hunters everywhere, even in the sea, as he commanded a great fish to fetch Jonah and spit him back up on the beach. You look all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we understand we can't hide from God. We can't outrun God. We can't get away from God. He is everywhere. He knows all things. The best thing we can do is be honest with the God that created us. Think about what we do when we see somebody looking at us. If you've watched people in a restaurant, and as I have children, I've watched this, and you'll experience this if the Lord blesses you with children. People act a different way when children are around each other. Somebody may use profanity, but if I've got one of my children with me and I look at them when they use that word, they'll look down at the child and they'll say, oh, I'm sorry. They're sorry because they said the word in front of young ears. In the eyes of a child, it will cause you to act differently because you don't want to corrupt a child. Now, some of you could relate more to this one as I could yesterday driving home from Gallipolis. I was driving down the road at what seemed to me to be the fair rate of speed. It was only about 20 miles an hour over the posted limit on the side of the road. And I wanted to get home to see my family. It was biblical, so <laughs> just kidding. It wasn't biblical. But on the other side of the road, I saw this car that was an interesting looking car with blue lights on the top of it. And it came driving down the other side of the road. And so suddenly I felt this urge to take my right foot and jab it onto the pedal to the left really quickly so that my car nose dipped down just a little bit as I went from 20 miles an hour over to about four miles an hour over the speed limit. I thought to myself immediately, I'm busted. The policeman turned and pulled into the median and I saw him hit his brake lights. I knew he was coming back. I set my cruise control on one mile an hour over the speed limit. I just can't drive that slow. I don't know what the problem is with my sinful nature, but I had to set my speed cruise control on it. The car I had just passed then decided to pass me as the policeman was coming up behind us. I thought, this is good. He's going to pull me over while another car's passing me. This gives him a moral predicament in his own mind. And he followed us for about three miles as the other car passed me. And as I kept my hands at 10 and 2, which rarely ever happens, and proceeded <laughs> one mile an hour over the speed limit as I motored down the road. The eyes of a policeman changed the way I drive. He was watching me. I was checking my mirrors every 10 seconds religiously. I put my phone down, hands on the wheel properly, eyes straight ahead, good posture, seatbelt on. I didn't even take a drink of the Coke that was beside me in the drink because I couldn't remove my hands from 10 and 2. Improper with the lawman right behind you deciding whether to pull you over or not. By the graciousness of God, somehow he decided not to give me a ticket. He turned and went a different way after a different car. But it changed my driving. I don't know whether the Lord let that happen because it fits this illustration, but you understand that the eyes of people on you will change your behavior. But why is it that we don't think about the fact that the eyes of God are always on us? That God is always with us. That God is always around. And so here we see that God is everywhere we understand that the darkness is nothing to him. But we also understand this. David's not writing this because he wants to escape from God. 
David is writing this and David is glorifying in this because he understands that if God sends me to the uttermost parts of the earth, if God sends me to where Boko Haram is, if God sends me to where ISIS is, God is already there. God already knows his presence is already before me. I have nothing to fear if I am in the center of God's will. That is the safest place for me to be because God is already there. And if you're in a deep well this morning, if you are walking through deep waters, God is already there. Nobody else may be able to perfectly understand you, but God does. God is there. Take comfort in that fact. We move and we look at the next set of three verses where God formed us wonderfully. And verse 13 begins with a conjunction. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance and your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, important words here. Our days were written before any of them were. Before any of them were in existence, the Lord intricately wove us together as the tissues and the muscles and the tendons and the nerves and the veins and the arteries formed in our bodies were woven as though God were weaving a tapestry to testify to his glory and his graciousness here. So when I look in the mirror and all I see is my lazy eye, my high hairline, my crooked teeth, my bowed legs, and the fact that my arms and legs are too long for my body, I'm looking at only the negative aspects of what I see in a humanistic point of view. And some of you do the exact same thing. Instead of looking at the intricacies of what God has woven in his glorious majesty, he does not make mistakes. He loves you just the way you are. And the things you look at that you may consider to be flaws, God does not consider those flaws. And so find your value and your worth and your identity in Christ and not in how you appear. We live in a Photoshop plastic world and you should never try to look what, like what the world wants you to look like. You should understand that God loves you the way you are and he created you to look on the inward beauty of a righteous spirit before him in a humble nature. And so be satisfied in who God made you. Oh, there are implications all over this. The worldview implications. For the doctrine of God's omniscience, his omnipresence, and his omnipotence. He knows all, he is everywhere, he is all-powerful. God created us in his image, and he created us different than the animals. It's not by an evolutionary value that he created us. He created us specially above the animals in his image, and he numbered our days. Think about the implications for all life from just these worldview items. The fact that God created us differently from the animals means that we should be treated differently from the animals. It's not like when we take an animal to be put down. That doesn't mean euthanasia is okay. God has numbered our days. He has given our life value. And as long as he leaves us on this earth, he has a purpose and a mission for us. There's worldview implications in this. God formed us even in the womb, even in the impenetrable. God was there forming us. That means that life has value. You understand that this worldview language here talking about the theology, it affects everything about our views of life from beginning to end. Now, Joy and I adopted our oldest daughter, and for years we went through the difficulty uh, having conception. Then one day God blessed, and I created a short video just so I could let my mom and dad kind of share in the process with us. Now, this video, I, it was something I created. It is not professionally done, so don't judge it on its quality or character. It was done on a MacBook Pro a long time ago, but it, it lets you see something that I want to make a point with this morning. So let's go ahead and roll the video. 
If you watched in that video, you saw there was one point where he would take his hand and with the palm of his hand, he would rub his eye, even in the 3D version in the womb. One of the first things I noticed about him when he was born as a baby is when he would get tired, he would take his hand and he would take the palm of his hand and he would rub his eye as an indicator to us that he was sleepy. Even today, if you watch him closely enough, you'll see at times when he gets tired, blanket in hand, thumb in mouth, he'll take the palm of that hand and he will rub that eye, indicating to us it's time to take a nap or go to bed. You see that. And you can't help but look out at our world, and you know where I'm headed with this, and look out at the atrocities that take place with abortion and Planned Parenthood. This text does not mention Planned Parenthood. This text does not mention abortion. This text is about how God fearfully and wonderfully made us. We had Scott Klusendorf come in, and he gave you the arguments. You'll remember those, the sled, the size, the level of development, the environment, and the degree of dependency. And he made this statement. When he made this statement, I cringed a little bit, but he said, you notice I didn't even use a single Bible verse. I thought, well, you could have. This is Cedarville University. You're not trying to convince the secular argument. But his purpose was to give the philosophical arguments. So I want to draw your attention now to the fact that you're looking for a Bible verse. Here's your verses. These verses indicate to you exactly what the biblical foundation is, is that God knew us. The frame was not hidden from us. He made in secret. He intricately wove us together. When we look at all of the videos, and I hope you have taken time to watch them as gross as they are, that have been published by the Center for Medical Progress, I have these thoughts that I want to convey to you. Don't you have to be human in order to donate human organs or tissue? How is it that you can sell tissue and organs and then claim, on the other hand, this is not human, this is a fetus? I understand why. You can humanize a lion by calling it Cecil, and you can dehumanize a baby by calling it fetal tissue. They talk about the power of words. We must use our words in this society to end abortion. I was born in 1973. In my lifetime, over 55 million babies have been killed. I long to see abortion end in my lifetime. You look at the killers throughout history, and Saddam Hussein killed about one million. We do that in a year. Adolf Hitler killed about 11 million. We do that in a decade. Joseph Stalin killed about 20 million. Over the time of my life, we have killed roughly 55 million babies in 42 years. That's more than a million a year. That's 3,000 per day. That's two per minute. I submit to you that America is not one nation under God. We are one nation in rebellion against God. 41% of Planned Parenthood's budget comes from taxpayer dollars, and a person who enters there is 175 times more likely to abort than put a baby up for adoption. They understand it. Mary Elizabeth Williams says this when referencing it. This is a quote from her. She says, what if abortion ends life? And I would put the life of a mother over the life of a fetus every single time, and if I need to acknowledge my conviction that the fetus is indeed, indeed a life, it's a life worth sacrificing. That's what she says. Here's one other thing I want to say to you, though. In the church, we should not shame people because they have had an abortion in their past. We should offer grace, and we should offer hope, and we should offer Jesus and the gospel to them because the gospel is a gospel that forgives all sin. And there are some ways in which the church is even pushing people to go get an abortion because they don't want to bear the marks of some kind of scarlet letter upon them. And so they go to take care of that and to get rid of that and compound sin upon sin. And instead of doing that, we should be for adoption. We should be for helping children. We should be for supporting them. We should be 
be for all of the good things, and at the same time, we should stand and say, do not abort this life. This is a life created by God. The days have been numbered. Have this baby. Put this baby up for adoption. We will help you. You have made a mistake, sure, but God forgives. We have a gospel of grace, not a gospel of law. Let's do something to change this in our lifetime. I've got to move on and close here quickly. The last six verses, let me read them to you. I'll say a couple of things. We'll be done here. It says, oh, that you would slay the wicked. Note the change in tone. David has talked about how God is great and he changes here to a prayer of judgment. Oh, that you would slay the wicked God. Men of blood depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Notice here that David reacts with hatred, but God still reacts with mercy. And then David turns from talking about them and he thinks about himself and he says here with what turns into be a prayer and he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me, any worldly way in me, any offensive way in me. And then lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me to eternal life with God. Lead me in the right way. And so here again, pride turns into humility as he says, good theology focuses on who we are. And he says, search me, know my heart, test me, scrape the impurities off of me, Lord, redirect my path so that I will follow you. Help me to seek you and to follow after you. There's a broader theological discussion here that I don't have time to get into today. So let me go to some final thoughts for you. Final thoughts is Psalm 139 begins with a theological truth. Oh Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. Psalm 139, 23 ends with a prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Good theology results in good prayers. When done correctly, nothing is more practical than good theology. So here's what I want to say to you today in closing. There may be some of you in the room right now that you know you haven't been completely honest with God, and you need to be. Honesty is the best policy when dealing with God. We believe in a God who knows. There may be some of you in the room right now that you need to go to a professor, and you need to tell a professor, I cheated on this assignment. I had academic dishonesty. You may need to go to a friend and you may need to tell a friend, I've said some things about you I shouldn't have said and I'm, I apologize. I want to use my words to build up, not to tear down. Whatever it is, I want you just to be real and to be honest with God and to recognize who he is and who we are because we believe in a God that knows. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear God, as I come to you today, I pray for our students, our faculty, and our staff, Lord, as I recognize as they do that we are all just sinful human beings. Father, even when we try to do good, we fail. And when we do good and accomplish it, we get prideful in our own actions and fail in other ways. And so God, help us as David did to pray, Lord, search us and know us, try us, help us to put us on the way everlasting that we would follow you and glorify you with our lives. God, help to challenge our thoughts in ways where they may not be biblical. Lord, help us to recognize that you are everywhere. You know all. You are already there. And so, Lord, we should plead to your mercy and your grace. We should take comfort in the fact that you are always with us, and we can lean upon your strength when we have none. God, be with us all. Bring revival to our campus and to our nation. Help us, Lord, to seek to please you and you alone. That's my prayer. 
for myself, for our faculty, for our staff, and for our students, Lord, is that you would help us to please you and only you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.